Well, the most difficult thing, Tan, is that when you're leading a business, is that everyone's going to come to you to give you the answer. If the truth be told, you might not necessarily know what that answer is, but what you can't do is be indecisive and pessimistic. You've got to look at the positivity because you've got to keep that team motivated under, under, under every set of circumstances. My guest today is Lee McAteer. He's the Associate Director at Tramia Rovers Football Club in the English League. He's the founder of multiple successful events and travel companies. This podcast was recorded at the end of March 2020, when Lee was stuck in Philadelphia waiting for a flight home to Manchester. He shares stories about how he started his companies and how he was once named Britain's best boss. So, here's Lee. Lee, so what was your first business venture when you started your career? Well, it, it's, it's funny. I suppose the question at this stage is, is what would you class as venture? Because what I didn't realise across my career was I was doing all these inverted commas, entrepreneurial activities without even understanding what creating a business or entrepreneurial activities were all about. So mm. I actually grew up, um, my mum was one of the first people in the UK to have a helium balloon business. <laughs> so she actually, so she, um, what she did was, was that she was watching the program Dallas and cool. saw, and saw balloons and thought, wow, that's a great idea. And, and ironically, as I, as I do this podcast with you, I'm sitting in uh, Exton, Pennsylvania with my, my uncle and auntie. And what happened with the balloon business was my mum rang them up and said, look, do you think we can get any of these helium balloons? They managed to find them, source them, brought them across the UK. And mm. she had a, a very flourishing balloon business in which she would deliver balloons for things like Valentine's Day or for weddings, etc. So it was something I grew up with and, and probably didn't quite realise at the time that I was learning so much in relation to all of that. But then wow. as, the, as my... Um, my education kind of progressed and somehow I became president of, of Leeds University Law Society. And I've got no idea how that happened, Tan, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I mean what it should have been was that it was the, uh, the award for the, for the biggest party animal, quite frankly. But what happened there was, was that I inherited this, this student law society and I decided to make some, some pretty big changes, which, quite frankly, everybody thought I was bonkers. Because membership for <laughs> the Law Society was, if memory serves you right, I think it was £5 to join. And I decided to make it £50 to join. And everybody thought that I was absolutely off my head. Wow. But the reason why I did that was because I believed in what we were going to try and achieve. And I believed that if we could have a bigger, bigger kitty to work with, we could deliver so much more value for our students, whether that be cheaper books whether that be events, great networking events in which we could get better speakers or better people to attend. And it got to the point where we actually generated £56,500 for a student law society, which at the time back in uh, what would have been, uh, gosh, uh, 2006, it was, it was pretty unheard of, quite frankly. Mm. And it got to the point where all these other students from all these other different um, majors were then decided to join the law society because they <laughs> wanted to work hard and play harder and that was really the the catalyst for what all these business ideas were because i was i was seeing opportunity after opportunity i created a magazine at law school called unlawful entry very bad pun that's a mm -hmm. show you can appreciate unlawful entry actually, love it 
Yeah, but that that was that was what kind of gave me the catalyst for then what was my initial next career move, and that was I went to work for EMAP, which then became Bauer Media. So I became production editor of Max Power magazine and 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 helped at times on on certain other magazines within their portfolio. Mm. And again, I didn't realize I was learning all of these entrepreneurial skills and 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 the, the words business acumen and commercial awareness get used a lot, especially when you're in law school or. Um, and accountancy practices. But what it really comes down to is, is if you go to a wholesaler and you decide that you're going to buy 100 chocolate bars for a pound mm. each, the mm. reality is if you can sell them for two pound each, that's what business acumen and commercial awareness is. That's mm. what it really kind of comes down to. But it's what was funny was, was that my business partner, Nick Steer, who I'd be lost without, absolutely fantastic guy. He was actually my social sec whilst I was president of the Law Society. And that was actually the foundation and the start off. But what even to this day is Invasion Camp Group, which is still owned 50-50 by, by me and Nick. And everyone's okay. very, very surprised by the fact that we never took external funding. And again, it's because we believed in each other. And, and the amount of times that we've been asked the question, uh, whether that be to, to Nick or to me personally, and they say, wow, you know, what's it like to have an overnight success? And both of us look at each other and, and, and laugh mm. because for us, it's amazing how many sleepless nights <laughs> went into an overnight success. Mm. And of course, as we make this podcast, we're dealing with one of the biggest crisis times that the world has ever seen, the coronavirus. And, and for my businesses, I've got events businesses, travel businesses, wow. and of course, the, the stuff that I do with Tramia um, from a sporting perspective. And it's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult because everything's so wishy-washy with no end date. It's very difficult to then plan for the future. And at the same time, all of your customers and your suppliers are asking you for next steps. Mm. But of course, the reality is, is that all we can do is give an estimate in terms of what we think will happen and hope that everybody works with us to the point where right now it's the safety of the world that matters and business has to come second. Yeah, man, absolutely. There's so much we could talk about that and we will. But I just wanted to quickly unpack some of the things you said there that I loved. So first of all, Dallas my parents watch Dallas and the first thing that I think of when I think of Dallas is not balloons. So your mom definitely had an <laughs> eye for business for sure. Like to, to, to get a, you know, lucrative business idea from watching a soap about Texan oil millionaires. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's funny because my, my mom, um, even, even to this day says, well, you must've got these entrepreneurial genes for me rather than your father. So, so it's always something that, uh, that, that tickles to this day. Awesome. And then the second thing, um, you were talking about while you were at Leeds, you raised the tickets from five pound to 50 pound. That's right. Yeah, I That's did. Interesting, I did. because I've been thinking about that recently. Let me let me put this to you. So were you and you were saying, you know, you weren't aware about you, you weren't thinking in terms of um, strategies that you've learned from any business books or anything. That's just like something that instinctively came to you. But, you know, it, you're probably familiar now with like the tactic of raising prices because people automatically equate high cost with high value like you weren't even thinking of things like that well it, it's true i mean the main thing for me was 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 actually i was thinking if i had that extra revenue that i would be able to deliver so much more when the reality <laughs> is if everybody only paid five pounds what could even though we had 
I think it was over a thousand members. Well, realistically, what could I really do with that? Whereas if I actually charged more, but that, and then the, could the audacity so much more. of increasing it <laughs> ten times, tenfold—that yeah. I, I salute you, sir. Well, I, I appreciate that. It was very difficult at the time, Tan, because yeah. as I, I mentioned previously, is of course everybody thought that I was mad. Everybody thought that they wouldn't pay it. But actually, what I did was was that I created these very high value booklets which mm. got sent to all of the freshers before they attended the uh, attended Leeds University Law School for the first time, explaining exactly what they would get for their money. And then we would then, I mean, I appreciate this is going a bit old school here, but you could, you could send a check in mm-hmm. um, in advance to become a member. So, of course, what we were also appealing to wasn't just the students or the prospective students, should I say, at that point, is actually to the parents to say, well, actually, this is a great thing because even on the book sale, if I'm spending, if, I'm, if I need to spend a thousand pounds on books, but I can get the secondhand ones for five hundred instead of a thousand, all of a sudden fifty pounds sounds like quite a good deal. And that was mm. all the things in which I was trying to do to show value. Um, and then it was quite funny because I would then negotiate with all these different law firms and accountancy practices and say, "Well, if you want to sponsor our event, this is what it's going to cost." And I remember a lot of them looking at me as if I'd, as if I just murdered their children for the kind of mm. prices that I was talking about. But actually, because I was starting off on such a high amount compared to what they were used to, yes. even, if we, even if we met in the middle, it was still so much more than what anybody had got previous. But of course, that meant that the expectations were higher and I had to manage those expectations. And, um, and, it, and it did get to the point where the, the law society ended up taking over my entire life. And actually, um, if memory serves me right, is that I think I had to average um, almost a first in my final year just to get a 2-1 because I'd spent so much time on on the, the law society side activities awesome yeah. and again um, these are things that you know you learn from i don't know economics human behavioral psychology in terms of having a high anchoring price you know having a raising the perception of value so these are things that you just did instinctively without thinking about any kind correct. of you know textbook philosophy i love it I've, I, I mean, literally, it, it, truthfully, it's only been in the last year or so that I've actually read any business books whatsoever, if the truth be told. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and, and because when people say to me, who's your mentor, who's this, who's that, is my, my mentor growing up, it was always my dad, purely because he, he drove me and pushed me all the time. So, for example, I could have got to the moon and he'd have said, well, that's great, son but why didn't you get to Mars? So he was always pushing me mm. time and time again. And whilst that was at times very difficult as a kid to deal with because it meant for, for me that, that no matter what I did, it was never good enough. From a long-term perspective, what it meant was was that actually I did ultimately achieve so much more than I ever thought would be possible because I don't think if that had happened, I don't think I would have come anywhere near close to what we've done if it wasn't for the fact that my, my father was pretty difficult with me. That's interesting because I think a lot of people can use that as an excuse. Whereas other people like you, instead of using it as an excuse, you use it to motivate you. Absolutely. I'm a great believer that you only get one shot at this life. And, and if I'm going to have a shot at it, I'm going to give it absolutely everything that I've got. Hmm. Okay. Let me uh, bring us to today from the story from Leeds. So you decided you wanted to do for work things you find 
you ha- you have fun in. So you wanted to do, you wanted to follow your passions. Would, would that be right? Absolutely. Um, because for me, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. So if you're working within your passions, it's never going to feel like work. And, and that's what, what my career has always followed. So, mm. I mean, it's quite funny actually, because for me, from going from law to then working on uh, a magazine such as Max Power, that um, for, for those of you listeners that, that might not know Max Power, you might know some other people that the careers that it started. So mm. for example, Katie Price or Jordan, as she was known back then, yes. that was actually the, the foundation for, for, for Max Power and a lot of TV presenters and actually by their own admission from the guys who created Top Gear, what they saw was, was that they, they looked at the things that we were creating as, as treatment ideas on a page and they would then make that into a, into a TV reality. So it was really the foundation for so much stuff. And of course, as a 20, what was I, 21, 22-year-old, red-blooded male, attracted to females, working with cars and girls, quite frankly, they couldn't have, they couldn't have been a better job for living me. The dream. Absolutely. Living the dream. Living the dream, absolutely. And, and I remember my, um, my, my first, the first gig that I ever had was I had to go down to Rockingham Speedway to go out in the new Aston Martin DBRS9 and interview Lord Paul Drayson and Johnny Cocker. Wow. And... They took me out in the car afterwards, and I'm thinking to myself, "This, this, this is a job," and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, it was. I was so thankful for that opportunity. So you've had cars, girls, wrestling, football—not just any football. The team that you grew up with, your hometown team. Um, let's take a quick look at each of them, and let's start with Americamp. So, just for people that don't know, it's for kids, young people living in the UK to travel and go and do some kind of ex- summer exchange in these different countries. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's basically the crux of it. I mean, AmeriCamp is, is a nine week program in which all of our guys from all around the world. So we have applicants from Australia, New Zealand, ah, Spain, not just from the UK, UK all, all over really. Right. That will then go and work at, um, work at a summer camp and do the AmeriCamp program. Awesome. And what they'll do is, is that um, as part of that, they'll get all their food and their accommodation paid for. Um, as part of the initial cost, we take care of their medical insurance and should be, uh, the issuance of the, of the visa papers. And they'll earn a salary of around about $1,750, which God still damn, is that's what good. Well, considering they're not, they're not, they've got no outgoings, I, you know, I'd like to think that that's pretty good because the initial foundation for the business was being able to offer salary three times what I got with my competitor, which mm. ultimately was about $1,500. So um, your, your, average, your average applicant will end up re- uh, receiving, um, and so when I say average, I don't mean in terms of how good their skill sets are. I mean, just in terms of the average age of the mm. people that go, they'll receive um, around $1,750. So that's a very exciting one because then what happens is after their placement with us is that they've then got 30 days to travel America wow. and they can use that money to go and enjoy themselves and whether that be go visit Florida, New York, California, go to a baseball game. Awesome. But of course, I mean, actually, I know you're a big NBA fan, Tan, and one of the camps that I used to, uh, used to be at, we actually had um, Joe Kim Noah and Speedy oh, Claxon okay. come, to, come, to, uh, come to our camp. Nice. And, uh, I mean, I, I am terrible at basketball, but we played, I don't know the name of the game, but it was um, where literally someone would, would shoot for the basket and then if the person behind them got it, they would knock them out. But we all, we all did that okay. with, uh, with Mr. Noah. And, and of course, he then ended up getting drafted to the uh, Bulls, I think it was. Yep, it was. Um, oh, so it was, was before he was drafted? Before he was drafted, okay. yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, really cool guy. Very, very tall guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And what, but, uh, what age kids uh, are you talking about here that so, apply, that can apply? So the, the, for the most part, people who are between 18 and 24 are the ones okay. that apply to do American. I mean, that's not to say that if you're over 24, you can't do it. It's just that that's what seems to be the... I mean, normally, most people that do it are probably around about 20, give or take. Okay. So not necessarily kids. Cool. Really no. cool. All right. And moving on to wrestling. So can you tell me what you do with wrestling? Like, what, how does the wrestling business work? What's your role? Absolutely. Well, how does... I guess it's a, it's a bigger question for how the wrestling business works because I don't think anybody <laughs> will ever be able to give you a true understanding <laughs> of that, I have to say. But in terms of how... I mean, well, your wrestling business. <laughs> but, you know, the way our wrestling travel business works was... was Basically, it started off from an idea because I needed I needed a service that wasn't that wasn't out there. So my girlfriend at the time bought me tickets for WrestleMania 30, and I thought, "Wow, fantastic!" What year was this? To sort. What year was WrestleMania um, 30? This, uh, WrestleMania 30, so it'd be six years ago. Okay. Um, when it was in New Orleans, mm. and I was looking around and thought, "Right, okay, so I need to sort flights out. I need to sort the accommodation out. I need to sort out all these events." And, and, and I was incredibly busy. So I, I was thought, well, I'm sure there's a company that can help me sort this. Yes. Anyway, there was no company. Turns out there wasn't. Turns out there wasn't one. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. And because I had the, uh, the travel company with the um, Abtra and Atoll um, details, is for me, I thought, well, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'll give myself 500 pounds and I'll see if I can create something and see if there's any interest. Now, I didn't do this that year. I ended up doing it for what was... Uh, WrestleMania 34, so a few years later. Um, but straight away, there was a massive interest, massive interest. I thought, wow, we've, we've got something really special here. Mm. I genuinely believe that we've made a big difference to the wrestling industry because there never was a product out like that, product that was out there beforehand because otherwise I'd have used it. So 36 is completely cancelled? They're doing it behind closed doors, Tam, is, is what they're doing. Yeah, but so for you, as far as your business... Yeah, so very, very difficult, completely. Yes, it's been cancelled and, and it's very difficult for that because it was so wishy-washy and, indeci and indecisive. And, and I was being told behind the scenes that there was difficulties with insurance and, and if, say, for example, WWE cancelled the event, that might, they might be on the line for money. If the governor cancelled the event, then actually they, wouldn't be, they would be the ones carrying the cans. It was almost like a game of chicken from what I could gather. But the, um, the show's still going on, but it's not going to be anywhere near the same, of course, because there's going to be no fans. And actually, some of the, the, the wrestling talent, like um, Roman Reigns, for example, has basically said that he's not willing to wrestle, given the circumstances, because he, um, he's, he recovered from leukemia not so long ago. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult set of circumstances. But what was also more difficult for us was that we were also being told there was a likelihood that they were going to postpone WrestleMania to a later date. And then we were told it could potentially be in a different state altogether. <laughs> so for us, we've got, we've got hundreds and hundreds of flights, yep. hundreds and hundreds of hotel rooms. Mm. We've, got, uh, we've taken out all the VIP suites in the Amelie Arena in Tampa, where the, uh, the, the Tampa Bay Lightning play. Um, and, you know, so we've got all these different suppliers that we've paid and the problem we've got right now is, is that we can't get back you to can't normal. Commit. Because we're, yeah. We can't commit. We can't commit to things. We're still waiting for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds to be returned to us 
because we're waiting for our suppliers to get back to us. And they're saying to us, well, they can't do anything until the coronavirus dies down. So it's a very difficult set of circumstances. And, and that's why to manage expectation, what I decided to do with a lot of the people that we spoke to is we said, well, look, if we offered you the opportunity to go to WrestleMania 37, it's a more, um, it's a more expensive package, but we'll absorb the cost for you. Would you be willing to do that? And, and so far, around about three quarters of our customers have decided to do that. And, and we look forward to, to showing them a really, really good time. Mm. Yeah, man, I, I see your mottos coming through and through, like just about staying positive through adversity. You, you know, you can't, you just have to find solutions when there aren't any, but you just have to. Well, the most difficult thing, Tan, is that when you're leading a business, is that everyone's going to come to you to give you the answer yep. or yep. To, for, them to, for, for them to want to get the answer from you. If the truth be told, you might not necessarily know what that answer is, mm. but what you can't do is be indecisive and pessimistic. You've got to look at the positivity because you've got to keep that team motivated under, under, under every set of circumstances. Of course, I am worried from a business perspective, but the reality is, is everybody's in the same position. Mm. And what we've got to do is, is that we've got to be positive and we've got to work together to, to beat this. That, that's what we have to do. It's, a, it's an enemy that we can't see. And for me, what, you know, what is the most important things right now? Well, the most important things to me are the, are the welfare of the people that I care about and the people that are affected by the business. I mean, I've seen this firsthand. So on my resting travel business, one of my main guys, before it all really became a major thing, was one of the first people to be diagnosed with coronavirus. Wow. So we had to shut the entire office down. And I've seen it firsthand. And I'm a great believer that, you know what, is hopefully everybody will understand and work, work with one another to the point where a bit like Dunkirk with Winston Churchill is sometimes you've got to retreat to, mm. so, you, so you lose the battle to win the war. And I believe that as soon as this all, all this is over, I think people will appreciate travel, events, hospitality so much more than they ever have done before. But of course, it, it, I, I can't lie to you, it, it's going to be, well, I say it's going to be, it, it is mm. an incredibly difficult time. And you're going to see a lot of businesses that, that sadly don't make it. And what you'll find is, is the businesses that are able to adapt quickest, the ones that, dare I say, aren't your dinosaurs, the ones mm. that are very agile, they're going to be the ones that will come out of this smelling mm. of roses. But how does um, a business like football, how do you... St- adapt and stay agile during this so do you see games being played without fans for instance supporters in empty stadiums do you see that as a possibility well it has to be a possibility um because again right now it's about it's about protecting the the safety of all of our loved ones and of course as part of that that means also looking after the safeties of the fans at the same time, we've also got to look after the safety of the players and ask whether or not this is something they can actually do or not, given the, given the set of circumstances. Of course, what becomes difficult is, is that with all of these different broadcast deals, so whether that be from um, in the UK, whether that be from Sky or BT Sport or now Amazon, is, of course, if they're paying for stuff, they're going to want to, of yeah. course, they're going to want a level of return. But that, all, that goes through all the spectrums of sponsorship. So um, what football clubs can do right now in terms of trying to help their revenue is to work with their fan bases and say, well, look, we're going we're gonna to start season tickets early. Would you like to um, buy more merchandise or, or a whole variety of things in which, um, in w- w- which can help? But 
if it gets to the point where it starts the game again and it's in a safe environment to do so, and then it, and it's behind closed doors, then then sadly I think that's what needs to happen. But if nothing else, it's actually progress because right now, of course, there's no sport whatsoever. Mm, mad. So what are your... You, you pl- you're planning to fly back to the UK in a few weeks. Um, what's the flight situation looking like amidst it's, this I can't crisis? lie, Tan. It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, what I've been told at the moment is I can get on a flight with United on the 20th of April, is what I've been told. So, is it direct or via New York? No. Um, it's from the, the current flight, I believe, is uh, it's from Newark, to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Heathrow, mm. when of course I'm tra- well, I'm trying to get back to, to Manchester. So How that, come that's you not, what's moved to the moment. Can you fly from Philadelphia? Well, at the moment, from what I've been told from my, I mean, and again, this is somebody who owns a travel company, <laughs> is I'm told that that's quite difficult at the moment. And because the situation's so fluid and changing all the time, it's become very difficult. And um, and one airline that was doing a flight this weekend, it was like £2,800 for a one-way flight. And they were openly admitting that they were overbooking the plane. So mm. there was no guarantee that actually you could even get on the plane in the first place. And, um, and of course, right now, sadly, it looks as though New York is, quite, is, is very quickly going to become one of the epicenters for the virus. Oh, so, of course, it's not somewhere that you want to spend great you know huge amounts of time in at the moment and, and i've got no doubt that will change very quickly so it's one of those scenarios where actually i don't want to put myself in that situation and when i get back to the uk what i would end up doing anyway is self-isolating just on the off chance that i that i do get that because god forbid i wouldn't want to give that to one of my loved ones mm. Okay, let's end it on a high. Britain's best boss, or is it UK's best boss? Well, it's not What's really the my official place to title. Say. Well, a good good question, Tom. I mean, it was it, it, it wasn't something that that I ever went out to try and to try and achieve or anything like that. It was something that the the media basically put onto myself. And but yeah, it was. Uh, well, it was a very tell me cool how point. how did how did it come about? So the starting point was, yes. was I turned my office into the world's largest adult ball pit, as you do. Wow. And it, was, it was crazy. It was absolutely bonkers. I mean, I literally, I, I didn't even tell my business partner about the fact that I was doing it. <laughs> and what we did was, was that I worked with, the, uh, with, with What Marketing um, and a company called Ball Mania to, to, to put it all together. And we mm. set this up with, with hidden cameras and planned the whole, uh. the whole, the whole thing. And it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And the, 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 the appreciate that the video went massively viral, went everywhere. And what was funny about it was, was that um, I can't remember if it was Unilad or Lad Bible now, but mm. one of them had taken some of the bits of the video that had, would, uh, had gone out on a separate site and made their own variation of it. And then mm. they put best boss ever um, at the end of the video. Ah. And before you know it, I had the Daily Mail. And that's why you should always believe the Daily Mail. Like I've said previously, on the mail, is, is um, always believe what you read in the Daily Mail, where he said, you know, Britain's best boss and um, in the Daily Mirror. And it was crazy, you know, the amount of coverage that we got all around the world. It, uh, it was a massive thing in Germany to the point where certain people were writing about certain work environments and what you should do to try and keep, keep your employees happy. 
Mm. And it's a fantastic, fantastic experience. But of course, it's a very difficult moniker to live up to because by my own admission, I don't think I'm Britain's best boss. It's funny because I've, I've kind of lived that moniker. Now, of course, it also means I'm very much there to be shot at. <laughs> if uh, I mean, I remember going on a, um, I remember being interviewed by, I think it was BBC Radio, I think it was, it was I can't remember, I think it was Radio 1 Extra. Mm. And they, they asked me the question and said, um, well, have you ever fired anybody? Oh, <laughs> good, good question. Great question. Great question. And this was live on the air. And, 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 I, obviously, and the reality is, is that, yeah, you know, yes, I have. Um, um, so, of course, straight away, in the eyes of the behold of the person that I fired, mm. strictly speaking, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be anything other than Britain's best boss. Mm. You know, far, far from it. So really it's very, very point. difficult. It's very difficult to live up to that because, again, it, you know, it, it, it almost becomes a, an, an, an easy target per se. But I think in terms of my own management style is what I've tried to do is create a space that inspires, that helps create engagement, creativity. And I look back to when I was studying law and then mm. started my training contract. And I didn't, I, I was literally, I was on a desk facing a wall, mm. didn't have a window. <laughs> and I felt to myself, well, how am I, how would I best work if I was mm. of a certain age group? And also to create a space that when we invited people down for the orientation, such as AmeriCamp and Camp Thailand, is all of a sudden it would give so many more connotations to our brands because then the the um, the applicants could then say, oh wow, okay, well, this is this is this is this is crazy. This is something that we 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 we're really looking forward to going down. And a lot of the times people come into the office and go, wow, so this is where the ball pit was at, and and it's great. And we created some mini ball pits from that as well, just to. To, I mean, we actually did one for dogs. So <laughs> we actually raised a load of money for, for the Dogs Trust in Manchester. You know, because again, what we always try and do is we, we, we try and push that proverbial envelope and, and whatnot. But um, I mean, because the other things in my office is that we've got a bar in the office. We've even got a, um, a palm tree that started off at Universal Studios in, uh, in California. And nice. we can also turn the office into a nightclub as well. Albeit, I can't lie, that's, that's caused a lot of issues for me in the past because it's, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the team, you know, it's work hard, play hard. And it's very difficult when you're in an office and you're playing hard and you've got so many statues and everything else like that. So it does become, it, it's very difficult to find that fine balance. But again, is I put myself in the shoes of each and every one of the staff members and say, is this a place environment-wise in which I would like to be and that I would like to work? And Man. when we're doing things like we've got and we do Fish and Chip Friday where we'll order fish and chips for everybody. Obviously, we can't do that right now because of the, this horrible virus, but as soon as we get back to business and we will, then we'll be continuing to, to do the same things. How do you handle going into work on a day when you're not feeling positive because we all have down days so as a manager as a leader what do you do when you're when you're not feeling extremely positive are you aware Truthfully, of that yeah i i am aware of that because i'm the kind of character that wears i mean i wear my heart on my sleeve mm. and sometimes that's not a good thing because as a leader you've got to be the one that is willing to do anything that either a current employee is doing or you've got to show that you've done it before because sometimes you're going to get questions in which the reality is, if you were to, have, if you were to be honest about it, you don't necessarily know what the right answer is. But you've got to go with your gut and you've got to believe enough in what you're saying for other people to follow your direction. And whilst at times there is a place in the workplace for realism, 
I don't feel there's a place for pessimism. And you've got to be optimistic and find the very best in every single crisis or opportunity. And the one thing I will say is that if I am, um, if I am wrong on something, I will very much so put my hand up and, and apologize, you know, if I've done something that, that's difficult. So if, for example, I mean, I've faced certain circumstances in which people have tried to create rival companies whilst, whilst I'm paying them, for example. But again, wow. it comes back, back to what Warren Buffett said to Bob Iger in terms of recruitment is go for integrity first and then mm. intelligence and energy come second because otherwise it will bite you in the ass. I mean, I, I remember interviewing one person and I didn't think I was being out of order in some of the questions that, that, that I asked but this person ended up um, getting really upset in the middle of the interview what did you ask so well she she basically gave it a marketing example which in my opinion and again it's, it's a game of opinions isn't it at the end of the day mm. I thought was incredibly naive so I basically put her on the spot about it and said well in my opinion, I think A, B, C, and D. Mm. And, and she got a bit upset about it. So what I did was, was that I said, okay, let's just give it 10 minutes. Mm. Um, we, you know, we made, we made, her, uh, made her a cup of tea and you know, we started again. But as it tra- wow. we actually gave her the job as it happened but, wow. um, in, in the end. But what, what transpired from it was the fact that she wanted this job so, so much. And she felt as though the minute I questioned what she was saying, that was that was game over. Mm. There was a rejection. I mean, I'm, I mean, again, this is where people are a little bit different. But Everyone's for me, different, if, yeah, I would welcome that. I would love that. Well, let me I, tell. I mean, let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Tan, because one of my favorite things is is when, if if say for example, an applicant turns around to me at the end of an interview and says, "Do you think there's anything else that I could have done to improve this interview, or do you have any reservations as to why you wouldn't hire me?" Mm. Now, it's a, it's it's quite a it's quite a ballsy question. But for me, it's a, it can be a bit of a game changer because I, I've been in certain circumstances where you've you thought to yourself, do you know what, this person is not right. But for me, if that person asks that question, I'm going to be honest about it and I'm going to, I'm going to tell them the reasons yeah. why. Because I just feel as though, if, at least if you can be honest about it, then, I mean, okay, they may turn around after the interview and, and turn around to, to friends or family and say, oh, well, you know, Lee McAteer is this, Lee McAteer is that. But at least I can be honest and say, this is the reason why, um, and and I've, I've had situations, with, you know, with with that again in the with, with certain employees is I've had to be honest with them, and it's not nice conversations. It's not, but it's about the institution, not the individual. It's the business that has to override everything because without that, nothing works. Yeah, and um, I really like that. What you're saying there is, it's it's better to not hold things in, and it's better to create an environment where somebody can be honest. You know, like there's so many, especially today in today's world, there's so many things that are unspoken and there's so many things that we shouldn't say out loud. So that's a great question. I've never thought about asking that question to a potential employer or potential collaborator. Like, so I'm going to take that one. That's a good question. Because then it forces them to say something honest and you get to see, are are they an honest person? Well, exactly. And also as well is that whilst, I mean, and I can't lie to you, Katan, I am terrible at taking criticism. Awful. <laughs> okay. um, I'm really, really, because I care so much about it. So if somebody tweets me something about one of the brands they're not happy with, you know, I might not reply, but my God, it hurts. It does. Okay. It hurts. And it's, and it, and it, and, you know, hopefully this isn't where I all of a sudden get bombarded on Twitter now to try mm. and get a reaction. But 
But I do, you know, I, I do. I take these things very personally, um, and, and and I probably need a, a tougher skin. But coming back to the constructive criticism point, is that it doesn't matter whether or not it's an employee, employer. Maybe it's a freelancer, freelancer scenario, or you're pitching for something. Is that feedback is really important, really important because at least if nothing else, you can then learn for next time and try and improve upon things. Because it may well be that you think, oh, that was fantastic, that was great, but actually. And in the eyes of other people, it, it's not. Um, so that, that's where it becomes, you've got to have guts to do that and have the confidence to do it. But I, I'm a great believer that if you do that, you're going to be in a much better position and better place next time the opportunity comes around. Uh, tell me a little bit about criticism. How do you, because it's great that you know your flaw, because I always say if people know their flaws, that's huge first step so you say that you know you handle criticism badly so how do you improve yourself on that like what do you keep in mind or do you have any anything you say to yourself any tricks any exercises you do so you get better at it you've got to listen you might not like it but you've got to listen you've got to listen and you've got to take it on board and actually have a time of reflection to say okay is this right? Is this wrong? Now, it may well be that you take the criticism and you think to yourself, do you know what? I've looked at this. I've looked at this from a few different angles and I'm not sure that actually I, I agree with it. But mm. what you can't do is just in a hot-headed way yes. respond straight away. Yes, you've, got to let it, you've got to let it settle, especially when it comes to diffusing arguments. Um, there's a fantastic masterclass um, online with Chris Voss, who was the oh, head of the Voss. negotiation. My FBI. God, I have the book. I have the book. It's so awesome. Well, uh, what a great guy he is. I mean, and he talks about how to diffuse a situation. Yeah, through, he's, through, he's through, a master at that. He's amazing. amazing. I mean, he's he's talked terrorists into, you know, giving themselves over to the police. So he's he's talked terrorists into surrendering. So there's a lot to learn from that guy about staying cool. Absolutely, staying cool under pressure, and, and actually trying to extract as much information as you possibly can, yep, so you've got a, a, a fuller point. a fuller view of what of what it is that you're dealing with. So, let's say, for example, you're going into a negotiation. Great point. And I mean, I'm a great believer that in negotiations, both both both, both teams should should come out feeling as though it's a win because yes. if because if if one team comes in and go, wow, we've completely destroyed the other person. Well, the reality is they're not going to have the same kind of buy-in to do exactly. the same kind of job. So, but what you've got to do is, I mean, and dare I say, even in like legal negotiations, say, for example, you've got an issue with a, with a supplier, um, another company, what it may be, is to try and mirror their conversations so they can extract, so you can extract the information out to so you can see exactly what the real problem is and, mm. and, kill, them with, and kill them with kindness. Mm. And that's a key point that he made in the book, you know, which is both parties have to win. And... And also the fact that that's possible. It's possible for both parties to come out satisfied with the result. And that's what we should be striving for. 100%. 100%. So that was Lee. You can find him on Twitter, um, Mr. Lee McAteer. The website for his company, I mean, he has multiple companies, but the main one is invasion and the website is ultrainvasion.com that's it from me i'm tan lay thanks for listening please join me again next time <laughs>